Want a better way to hire? We asked businesses across Australia. We trialled Liam through Youth Jobs Path and then hired him as a design assistant. Liam is so keen to learn. He gets along with everyone and we get help with wage and training costs. Louise gave me a go and now I've got a job. Yeah, it worked for us. To find motivated young staff and get up to $10,000 in assistance, search Youth Jobs Path. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra, spoken by Jay Green, L Nobes and L Nicolau. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and with me, as always, is David Scott. How are you doing, Dave? Very good, thanks, man. I'm about to go and uh, head up to Burley Heads, so I'm, uh, I'm in an absolute uh, ecstatic mood. Yeah, and uh, look, it's, uh, it's sure as hell been a good week. There's been a little bit of vol around. Uh, we had this um, fantastic result in uh, the uh, National Survey on, on same-sex marriage, which was just terrific. Uh, and uh, the Socceroos through to the World Cup. All good. And here for a bit of a feel-good podcast, and I think it's going to be a really interesting one. Our guest on the show is Chief Economist at ABC Bullion in Sydney, Jordan Alessio. Hi, Jordan. Hi, Colgo. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me back on. Uh, Jordan's been on uh, the show with us a couple of times uh, before. In fact, I think he was on one of the very first episodes. Uh, Jordan's a great analyst uh, and economist. And working in the gold space uh, was a big part of his job to understand hedging and uh, risk assets in particular. And he's been doing a lot of work on cryptocurrencies. Uh, he's got a big uh, research report coming out pretty soon um, from ABC Bullion. Um, and um, he's shared some of the work with us. And uh, it's certainly very interesting. So we're going to dive into that a little bit later. But let's get straight to some of the big news of the week. Uh, David, U.S. stocks have been pulling back just a little bit, you know, half a percent down on the S&P. Um, we had a bad day in Asia yesterday, and we've had this coup in Zimbabwe, which has seen bond yields tighten, uh, particularly U.S. Treasuries. Um, and, um, you know, there's been a few little jitters, like kind of 1% moves in very sudden in the Nikkei. Um, maybe a little bit of vol coming back. It looks like it, but uh, you've got to put everything in perspective. Um you go to talking about this week and there's been a few uh, fluctuations and a bit of a sell-off in stocks and commods and, and whatnot. But go back two weeks ago and it was basically euphoria across financial markets. So everything, like, those headlines by the day, you know, there's Nikkei makes it to X number of uh, no winning streak, no longer since XYZ. Uh, no, our commodities are going to the moon, like the global economy is like absolutely flying and whatnot. Um, so... We saw that little bit of a euphoric pop, and then uh, now we're seeing uh, maybe a bit of a late regretful buying People on behalf. Taking the Al- Alcacetza, yeah, uh, you know. Um, Jordan, um, how are you seeing things at the moment? Yeah, I think I think Dave's right. It's it's been a, a pretty extraordinary year. You know, risk assets all time high after all time high, complete absence of volatility, um, pretty much everywhere. I, I did have a chuckle listening to your podcast last week and the, the conversation about the. The selling of vol on rapeseed oil, I yeah. think it was, <laughs> yeah, um, that's a... <laughs> which is a pretty appropriate metaphor. I, I think it's, I think it's going lower. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> highly liquid, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, there is a bit of vol creeping back in now. I think you know junk bonds are starting to sell off a little bit. Um, you know, the Zimbabwe issue. Um, you know, it's obviously it's obviously um, making a bit of news. Although, not sure. You know, probably a little bit like Venezuela. I'm not sure how how important Zimbabwe really is. Probably the the news out of Saudi in in the last couple of weeks is is probably the bigger issue that that's causing investors to have a bit of a, a look up and you know there's been I suppose noises for want of a better term out of there for a while um, in terms of you know relationships with Qatar Yemen other other countries in the Middle East so I think if if there was any sort of I suppose geopolitical flare up that could could scare markets in, in any meaningful way in the Middle East far more likely to be there than, than Zimbabwe or Venezuela. Yeah, and I think that the at least what what's we have in common between uh, what's happening in Saudi Arabia and in the Middle East is what, these precarious situations where we lit, there's just no sensible way of pricing the various possible outcomes that can come out of this. We just don't know. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good point. Actually, you know, funnily enough, obviously, being in gold, you know, you quite often see gold maybe rally 15, 20 bucks when there's a headline about something in Saudi or, you know, Korea a couple of times earlier this year. But as you say, it's, it's sort of almost impossible to price. So unless something meaningful actually happens, markets always end up fading those moves. So, And that's understandable, right? Because, mm. I mean, how do you really... You know, if you're a portfolio manager or an SMSF trustee... How do you really go and reallocate your portfolio based on a, 
you know, a BBC headline about the, you know, the removal of one of the 57 crown princes sort of thing. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's difficult to price, that's for sure. Well, look, something that we can definitely price and talk about, uh, talk about in, uh, in some detail is uh, some of the data that we uh, got out uh, of Australia this week. Yet again, David, another pretty shocking wage price index uh, report. This is a quarterly release, which we watch really, really carefully on Business Insider. Um, Dave, I'll just hand over to you, but this is this is important and another weak number, wasn't it? It was a very weak number. Um, I likened it to, people remember back to when we had our CPI deflation uh, print that came out uh, in early 2016, where uh, we saw CPI fall by 0.2%. I likened it to that. Um, so what happened uh, in the, the September quarters, we saw wages, hourly wage growth go up by 0.5%. Left uh, the annual growth at two percent. Now that sounds all right. You no know, headline inflation is running at one point eight percent, so that suggests that you no know, the real wages no actually we went up a little bit, and there's a bit of an acceleration. The problem with it is that it followed a increase in the minimum wage rate in Australia at the start of July, which was expected to go and add point uh, two of a percentage point onto the quarterly figure, and it didn't. Instead of that, we had the same reading as the as the quarter before. So without that temporary factor, you know, all things being equal, you probably would have seen a record low quarter uh, for wage growth, which is a little bit disconcerting given how strong we've seen in hiring in Australia in the last uh, last nine months or so. So, and I think I saw a comment from Shane Oliver at AMP who um, said that he, by his calculations, if you adjusted for the impact of that uh, increase in the minimum wage and some other enterprise bargaining agreements that came into force at the start of the financial year, uh, private sector wages growth would have been uh, 1.8%, and CPI is 1.8%. So basically, it's feeding into this picture of how the consumer sector is just kind of stranded. Uh, Household budgets don't have any room to grow. there is a possibility. I mean, it doesn't look. We'll talk about uh, the RBA and interest rates in the in, in a moment. But there is a possibility that the banks might um, introduce more out of cycle uh, rate hikes. And we certainly have this ongoing issue with energy price rises um, and other you know um, necessities of life, uh, which are squeezing um, budget uh, household budgets. Um, so one of my favorite charts at the moment is uh, the chart in retail sa- monthly retail sales growth um, when you look back over the last uh, year or so and it's just on this relentless sort of decline and how I talk about it is sort of you know we might be looking at a picture here of Australia's luck starting to run out um, there's you know people have less and less money to go and spend uh, on you know the things that they like um, and all of that spending supports cafes, restaurants, um, but also then big, big employers like clothing stores, um, you know, other retail um, and, and, you know, life's little luxuries. Um, And that household consumption element of the economy is 55 to 60 percent of of the Australian economy. And that starts squeezing. Uh, You've got, um, I think, for me, this is a kind of a worrying picture. It's slow and it's kind of glacial in its in its pace because there's just these little things, these little wage pressures combined with little price pressures and headline inflation just starting to overtake wage pressure uh, or just starting to overtake um, income growth. Uh, and with the level of debt that we have, uh, it creates a very fragile picture. Yeah, and you forgot to go and add in that we've got a slowing housing market now. And in some cases, like in Sydney, we're seeing house prices start going backwards now. So that's another factor you need to consider. You know, this is the vast majority of Australians, uh, you know, largest asset they hold is their house. Uh, now, obviously, there's been some stonkingly large gains over the past uh, decade or so. But even so... Uh, I can understand why people get a little bit nervous when they see that, oh, hang on a second, property prices are starting to go down now. Uh, and you, you touched upon you know, the, the wage picture, the energy picture. Uh, there's a whole lot of factors here that are all sort of culminating at the same time that uh, you know, does create a little bit of concern as to what that may lead to. We don't know how the services picture was in uh, services spending picture was in the September quarter. We won't find that until the GDP report. But we saw that there was a 0.01% increase in volumes in retail, which is about a third of, uh, of consumption. Uh, if you get a weak result for the services spend, then we will be looking at a very, very soft quarterly growth figure, even uh, if you consider you know, what we're seeing that looks like we're going to have a bit of a contribution from the, uh, the trade sector. I think uh, to- if I could quickly just yeah. jump in there, the, 
the comment around inflation is an interesting one because yeah, the official number's quite low, but if you if you look at it, that's been really helped, I suppose, to to, to stay low by the fact that tradable inflation's dropped very significantly in the last three years. So if you look at non-tradable, which is obviously all the stuff that the government influences the most and you know things like energy prices and that, that's actually doubled in the last sort of 12 months or so, and it's now running you know better part of, well, over 3%. Um, so it's no surprise that the average consumer or the average Australian household does feel so stretched. You've got a savings rate that, including super, is barely at 5%. So... It's basically negative once you take super into account. And and your point, Dave, about, about households, it's kind of funny that um, – well, maybe I shouldn't say funny, but in the same week that we're seeing such dire uh, wage price growth, um, Credit Suisse released their global wealth report, which suggests that Australia now has something like 200,000 new millionaires because the mark-to-market value of our housing is so high. But over 80% of that wealth is trapped in housing and super. So yeah, the economy can't sell it all at the same yeah, time. You can't sell it. Well, you can't use <laughs> you it. Can full, you can't use it full stop, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a real problem. And and you know, with household debt, you know, probably going to blow through two hundred percent of disposable income by next year. The as you said, Colgo, the the consumer and, and kind of therefore the economy is is largely stuck. Uh, one bright side has been job creation. Obviously, David, uh, we had another report. We're recording on Thursday afternoon. We had another report today. Uh, Reasonably okay uh, report, yeah. This time around, yeah, can't can't really fault it. No, the excluding the uh, month-to-month volatility in the seasonally adjusted data, no, four thousand odd increase in employment, no, twenty-four thousand odd of uh, that was uh, increase was for full-time employment, um, unemployment to the lowest level since January twenty thirteen. Uh, labour market participation fell a touch, but it's still been trending up quite nicely. Um, it's hard to go and fault that, but no, as we've seen with the uh, the wage data we saw this week that. Um, just because you've got really strong labour market conditions does not translate necessarily to you know, a pick-up in wage pressures. You know, we still have a lot of underemployment, you know, a lot of people who are unemployed but would like to go and work more hours that are still available and looking to go and get more hours. Uh, and even with the strong demand we're seeing from hiring at the moment, there's still not enough to really soak up that uh, that slack. Uh, and you've got things like uh, you know, population growth is, uh, is humming along at 1.6% per annum at the moment. So that's all, you know, people who are feeding into the labour market that need to have jobs. So it's very difficult to see, you know, given what we've seen in Australia recently, what we've seen abroad in the likes of Japan, the US, the UK, where they've got far tighter labour market conditions than here. And they're still very, they're struggling to go and get any wage pressures whatsoever. I think underutilisation, as you put, sort of touched on, is the issue. And yeah, with the immigration intake that we have in this country, you know, more inputs equals more outputs. You know, GDP is a an imperfect measure at the best of times of national prosperity, probably in Australia, given our, our immigration intake and given sort of net exports of commodities, our, our GDP figure is probably worse than most other nations in terms of it being an accurate reflection of how well the economy is really going. Well, certainly GDP per capita has been yep. declining uh, pretty significantly for the last decade or so. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where do you think all of this uh, Jordan leaves the RBA? Oh, look, I, I've... I've long held that the RBA will will continue to ease. I don't think they should because I don't think lower rates will will actually help in any way. In fact, I think, if anything, they'll contribute to a lack of confidence um, both for consumers and even for businesses. I think businesses know that there's, you know, some underlying issues in the economy. Um, But, look, you know... When, whenever a central bank is between a rock, rock and a hard place on, I suppose, managing financial stability concerns versus giving the consumer a bit more breathing space, they always vote to ease. So I think the RBA will inevitably do that um, at, and, and I suspect we'll see a cash rate of 1.25 by the end of Q1 next year, Q2 at the latest. Yeah, good on you. Um, you know, um, there's a... Because uh, a lot of people think that rates are on hold till at least... And possibly a hike um, the end of next year uh, or early 2019, but you think another cut? Um, I, think it, I think at least one, yeah. I mean, yeah. They, uh, the RBA is clearly desperate to hold. Um, mm. they, they'd prefer not to cut. I also think they've done a relatively good job of sort of passing the buck over to APRA as well in terms of the financial stability concerns. So I think that now that we're seeing some heat coming out of the housing market, I reckon that probably gives the RBA a little bit more confidence to say, well, look, if we have to cut... We're, we're not as worried that actually we're just going to go and kick off another bout of speculative investor, you know, activity in the in the in the home market in the, in the housing market. So, 
yeah, I think the RBA will be happy to see the slowdown in, in property prices. Let, let, let me ask you um, about the housing market. I just noticed one thing that's happened um, this week has been NAB um, has announced that it's sacked 20 bankers and they've called in the police uh, to review the mortgage, uh, basically a corner of their, their mortgage lending team. Uh, and there was all sorts of questions about the loans that these guys had put out. Um, and it's the kind of thing that just, you know, of course, there'll be a lot of talk about how this is, you know, contained and isolated to these um, certain individuals. They are now gone from the bank and all that kind of, you know, the problem is managed. Sure. And also uh, all of the banks, all of the major banks have been talking about how the levels of mortgage um, of distress lending or, um, uh, or, or basically mortgage customers who are under pressure to meet their repayments has actually been falling. Um, so um, and that's been a consistent trend uh, throughout this calendar year. Uh, so that in some ways is kind of reassuring. But things like this are never a good sign when there is this atmosphere about speculative lending, uh, when APRA has been crawling all over the banks, uh, checking that they're um, doing their doing all of their diligence on their, their loans, etc., uh, and adhering to all the APRA-imposed rules. Uh, in that kind of environment that guys would, you know, end up having to be let Walked. go. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it kind of – 20 of them, not one. 20. <laughs> it's a large number of people. Um, on, on top uh, of 6,000 proposed job cuts as well, I think. Is it, was NAB announced that? In the yeah, last, over a yeah. four-year period yeah, or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, so, look, um, anyway, that's all – you know, we, we, we've it's, – it's all feeds into this whole thing about – Risky lending, um, the amount of debt that's built up, um, uh, you know, that, that consumers and uh, mortgage holders have built up uh, in order to make sure that they're getting some kind of slice of this growth in house prices that's been going on for, um, for, for years now. Um, can I ask you, we always ask this of our, um, of our guests, but um, your assessment of the housing market and, um, and where we're up to. Well, I live, so I suppose there's a bit of an anecdote to start with. I live over in Balmain, Roselle, and... Um, you know, I've been noticing a lot more sort of for sale signs out, out you know, around the streets on the weekends. And, and um, I went and had a look at a, a three-bedroom apartment that sort of essentially looks over Birkenhead Point, looks over the water. It's a not, nice spot. Um, you know, they're still asking $2.6 for a three-bedroom apartment, which would, you know, if I work out what, what I pay to rent in the area and what this thing would rent for, by the time you're paying strata, you'd be lucky to make 2%. So prices are still incredibly high. Yields are still incredibly low. Um, but there's no doubt in my mind that the wheel has sort of turned, as it were. And, you know, if I look back at the, the previous times we've discussed housing on, on this podcast, you know, about a year and a half ago, you know, essentially the message was, yeah, look, be careful. There's probably a bit more price growth to come, but we're coming towards the end of the cycle. Earlier this year when we were talking about it, you know, the, I suppose the view was even riskier now because Sydney and Melbourne have come up a little more and now all the apartments are coming on, um, you know, the supplies hitting the market. Um, and I think I think now we're in a scenario where not only are investors stepping back in Australia, um, but you've also got the the foreign property bid is not as strong as it used to be. Um, you know, even even going back six months. Um, I also think that you know the impact with with Labor, who are likely to form the next government, um, and their proposals around negative gearing. I really can't stress enough how big an impact I think that has had in the property market in the last 18 months, both in terms of pushing prices up and causing volumes to decline. Because and so bringing in, demand forward so that absolutely. you can get your negatively geared loan. Ex yeah. Exactly. And you, you look at the volume of – I mean, look at the problem some of the Sydney real estate agents are having because there's hardly – well, relative to the past, there's hardly anything selling. So you've seen this essentially – you know, if it was a stock market, it's a low-volume melt-up. That's what we've seen in the mm. last sort of – I suppose, 15, 16 months in Sydney and Melbourne. Now it seems to be rolling over. In terms of NAB and, and the, um, the, the 20 people, it looks like they're letting go. Again, with the view of Labor coming in and the noise around a Royal Commission, one does wonder whether the banks are trying to really do their best to appear like they're, they're all over this internally and they are really doing their best to review the practices of, of their own staff. Um, you know, there's no question if, if Labor gets in, there's going to be noise around the Royal Commission. Banks will obviously, for, you know, for, for very reasonable reasons, will, will want to try and avoid that. I've tried to envision what a royal commission for the banks would look like, and 
one of the things um, that sort of occurred to me w- was the amount that particularly uh, investors uh, in the financial markets, just an impact in the financial markets, you'd have to have teams of specialists, uh, lawyers, financial analysts, equity analysts, uh, sitting there watching every minute of this. Because all it takes is for one person to say one dynamite thing about um, lending practices in a bank somewhere or a conversation or a sort of letter or a warning from APRA or something. Um, and this is the kind of stuff that comes out in Royal Commission. Sure. Um, uh, you, you know, um, it, it, it's not, it is completely different to this scenario which we have at the moment where the CEOs go to Canberra and get sort of punched around the head even though they've got a head guard, head guard on but they do get, you know, bopped around the head by committee. Uh, but this is different. So you'll have employees, ex-employees, um, directors, uh, you know, APRA officials, all of that, I mean, depending on the terms of reference and how they scope it and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, being coming there on a daily basis and something that might go on for, you know, pick a number, six months, a year. Um, so, uh, and the, the, again, it's like one of those scenarios where, you, just, you know, you, you can't price it. It's impossible to know the scale of the risk uh, when we go into the process. And then, of course, you've you got the final recommendations, which could entirely upend the regulatory environment for uh, for for Australian banks. Um, so uh, to your point, there's the whole negative gearing thing for the housing market. But then there is the you, you add in behind that the reality of and the challenges that a Labour government might pose for the banking sector. Now, look, there'll be a lot of people out there who think, look, the banks need to, you know, have some manners put on them. And uh, even when they're, you know, complaining about, well, having this small uh, extra levy onto our, our books, but still pro- posting, uh, you know, record levels of profit um, and then, you know, managing that margin by, by sacking people, you know, program of layoffs into the future. Sure. Um, you know, um, the banks still don't seem to be terribly good at keeping control of this, um, this uh, the, the public this, relations, as it were, around this it. brand problem that, yeah. that so many of that, that the sector has, um, and some uh, there's just two. I'll, I'll stop going on about them now in a second, but uh, you know. You know, talking about banks is, you know, it's a bit like talking about, you know, cleaning pipes or something. It's, uh, you know, like there's a point where it just gets a bit icky and you just get people start going, yeah, yeah, I know it's interesting and it's important and all that kind of stuff. But let's talk about something more fun. And I promise we will do that in a second. But one of the really interesting things I've um, heard about the research, um, the market research about the perception of banks is that people really, really like their own bank. Um, but if you ask them about banks in general, those kind of those those people in those big buildings with all that, who make all that money, um, they don't like that. That's what they don't like. Yeah. But their own bank, they're like, I really like what it does for me. Love the rate I got from them. Love the service, um, and they're giving me a really good product. Um, so I think that's an enormous marketing challenge um, for the banking sector. Um, they often do things that are not very smart. I think that the appointment of Anna Bly um, uh, to the Australian Banking Association was just not, not very well calculated. Um, but, Corny um, would be a, a probably more appropriate word, in my opinion. Yeah, well, we've got a Labour... Labour's proposing a Royal Commission. I know. Let's get a Labour person in to represent us. Yeah, it almost it almost forces Bill Shorten's hand, doesn't it, if he, if he gets in as the next Prime Minister to sort of say, well... No, we have to move forward with this, otherwise it's going to look like we're not because one of our ex state premiers is now the CEO of the ABA. So yeah, I think it I think yeah. it was a bad move. I think the optics around it were bad for the banks and actually probably bad for Labour as well, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, one of yours has gone over to, to be the face of the banks now, yeah. Well you see a lot of these problems stem from it's from things like commissions and short term bonuses. Now that's been you know, part of the, the banking and finance world for eons. But you see, where so many of these issues occur always stems around where people are trying to go and cut corners to go and make money. Uh, Short term, no, okay, I get extra commission for doing this product, for selling this. No, if I go and get that, then I'll go and get a a short term incentive bonus. Um, Fantastic, no. And to me, that's part of the behavioral problem that we're seeing is that you're giving too many people short term incentives to go and make risky decisions or things that are 
you know, potentially outside the law in order to go and, and profit short term. And to me, that's one area where if you want to go and do something about the financial system and how you know, these you know, problems are occurring, is that something that has to be looked at? I know it sounds terrible and everyone know all the bankers will be like, oh, Scuddy, how dare you? Like, no, I want to get my bonus and whatnot. But that's where so much of this bad behavior comes from. Well, I think especially given, you know, there is an implicit taxpayer put underneath the banks. Yep. Um, and given, you know, I mean, you go buy coffee in the morning, they try and sell you some banana bread, right? Mm. Like, But the financial ramifications of that, if you buy the banana bread that you didn't really need, mm. are not that significant. You know, get talked into a, a housing loan that you can't really afford or get sold a suite of wealth management products that are not appropriate for your true risk profile. You know, the, the ramifications are, are far more significant. And when you can, you know, potentially be, I suppose, a, a loser out of these things as the individual consumer, but then also f- be forced to contribute your share of the pie as a taxpayer supporting the whole system, that just doesn't work, right? Politically, that's mm. that's bad news for it. You know, it, it, and there's no surprise that, yeah, and, and it's quite sad because banks play a fundamentally important part in an economy, right? And if we want to be prosperous, we need a strong and healthy banking system. So, you know, I definitely don't want to, you know, come across in, in this podcast or any communication as being anti the banks. We need healthy banks. Um, but part of it, given their, their role within the economy, is that they are, not only do they do the right thing, they're seen to do the right thing as well. And, and that's where some of the issue can, can, can come in. Look, I absolutely agree with you. And I think it's probably one of the points that I was trying to um, to make but couldn't because I can be waffle sometimes but this whole thing about what a Royal Commission might do for confidence in the banking system um, and banks are you know hugely important social institutions and I, I think you know the, the federal government put as you like um, as you referred to is probably something that this well it's obviously very supportive for their share prices um, but uh, and it's, it's supportive for their stability um, but uh, this kind of thing, um, you know, a, a royal commission being proposed um, is, you know, is I think a different ballgame. Um, and, uh, you know, this uncertainty, et cetera. And I think the job that the banks have had to do and they haven't done well and this is why they've ended up in the situation where they've been, uh, you know, they had their CEOs bashed around the head by a parliamentary committee on a regular basis and um, they were the biggest targets in the federal budget this year uh, in terms of, you know, new tax grab um, that is to do with this perception problem that they have failed to address, which is this gap between how people like their own bank, but they don't like the banks. Yeah. Um, so, look, it's going to be—it's certainly going to be interesting, um, and we'll be keeping a close eye on it in the months ahead. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. We're here with Jordan Alicio, Chief Economist at ABC Bullion, um, and of course, David Scott. Now, cryptocurrencies, here we go. So, um, I got a question on Twitter uh, last week um, from a reader who was saying, look, you know, and you talk about the price of Bitcoin being at six and a half thousand US dollars. I think it's seven thousand. It crashed to below six this week. It's you know, in a matter of days, it's back above seven thousand US dollars. Um, so getting pretty close to ten thousand Australian dollars. Um, so and you have this wild volatility in the in in um, in the prices. Um, you know that it can move that much in, in the space of a few days, and that kind of tends to be the characteristic of a very illiquid market. And this question from this guy was, "Well, did one person just buy one Bitcoin for eight thousand dollars?" And you're like, "Well, look, the way a market works is the price is the last price paid, um, so that's where your marker is." Um, and but I will promise I will look into you into this for you. Now um, we learned on Monday. That just on Sunday alone, right, last Sunday, get this, <clears throat> trading volumes uh, in Bitcoin peaked at 26 billion US dollars. Now, it's not as big as, you know, it's, it's nowhere near the size of a, of a very large stock exchange or the ASX, but um, <laughs> it is the size of the, like the Chicago stock exchange, uh, roughly, um, you know, that, you know, bigger than their average trading volumes. Um, so this is not a small market anymore. And there are big players, institutional uh, banks, 
will now take and place orders for Bitcoin and, well, certainly for Bitcoin um, and, and perhaps for a handful of other uh, cryptocurrencies. Um, Jordan, you've been looking at this for a while uh, and I'm absolutely fascinated to hear your, you know, what are your, your everybody wants to know, does this mean anything? Um, why is it important? Should I be holding it as an asset? Um, is it going to transform the future of money? Um, lots of people have a view and you'll hear very technical explanations from a lot of people uh, on why it is so important or, or why it's rubbish or whatever. Um, but I know you've been looking at it in some detail and um, you're a very sensible guy. So <laughs> it's great to get a chance uh, to, to, hear your, um, to hear your take on it. Look, I think um, the, the liquidity numbers that you, you talked about uh, are not surprising. And if you just think of the actual market cap of not just Bitcoin, but the cryptocurrency space, it's essentially more than 10 bagged this year from sort of less than 20 billion at the start of the year to over 200, um, you know, as at the start of November, essentially. Um, and, you know, when you look at things like the CMA looking to launch a futures contract, um, it is b becoming, for want of a better term, legitimized as a financial asset. Um, I would I would point out that the CMA launching a futures contract is just as likely to prove bearish as it is bullish for prices now because there'll be plenty of hedge funds that will go, fantastic, there's now an instrument I can use to short the this parabolic rise. Not saying they will, but there, there's, there's now an opportunity for them to do so where previously um, there wasn't. Look, I think if I could if I could summarise it in a, in a couple of bullet points to to start with, I know we'll discuss it for a few minutes, but I am uh, I am a fundamental believer that blockchain technology is real and the potential for it to you know whether you want to call it disrupt or um, you know be used in a handful of important industries is unquestionable. Not just not just banking and financial services either. Um, as for Bitcoin and the question of whether people should invest in it, look, I'm, you know, if I think of my own portfolio, it's probably like the ultimate barbell strategy. I've got heaps of cash and heaps of gold. Um, I also have a couple of VC investments and I own a racehorse. So I'm clearly okay with having some speculative money invested. Yeah, sure. Um, and, it's not you know, winks, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, but if you, um, if you look at where broader financial markets are now, they are extremely expensive. And this is potentially revolutionary technology. So I can totally understand why people might want to speculate with, you know, one or two percent of their wealth in either just Bitcoin specifically or cryptocurrency. And, and I was talking to a financial advisor who, who buys some gold through us. And he was saying, you know, Jordan, I've got a couple of clients and they've said, just buy me one Bitcoin. I actually don't care if it goes to zero. I can afford to lose a few grand, but I'm excited by it, you know, and it's, you know, if for nothing else, it's kind of cool that I can tell my kids that, yeah, dad, mum and dad are, are tech savvy. We own Bitcoin. Um, so I have no problem with, with people wanting to, to have a bit of exposure to it. What, what concerns me, though, is there are people that are, you know, quite, and I think you guys actually had an article on this about people selling their house, you know, selling all their stocks, bonds, gold, you name it, and piling it all into Bitcoin because of some, you know, price forecast that it's, going to hit a million dollars a coin by 2025. And if you look at, you know, if you look at all the characteristics of a bubble, one of the things a bubble needs is actually a fundamentally good story behind it. Bitcoin and blockchain is a fundamentally good story. It then needs accelerated price action. We've definitely got that. The, yeah. it's, it's not just that the price has risen astronomically, the pace of price rises has gotten faster and faster. Um, I think sadly as well, you are now seeing the arrival of the spruikers as well. So the, and, and we've all heard those those things before. You know the you know you get the webinar and it tells you the story about the retired school teacher who <laughs> was struggling to make ends meet, and now they can take their grandkids to Disneyland and they've paid off their house. And and you know when you start seeing that stuff, you you start going well. These are these are kind of the, the hallmarks of of something that's run far too fast price wise. So mm. for that reason, you know I think there's there's serious potential that prices could pull back. Um, when it comes to Bitcoin's ability to essentially usurp the fiat monetary system um, and even gold, I suppose, as the, the, the sort of premier long-term savings asset, um, all of the research that I've done leaves me very unconvinced of that proposition. So 
Um, I think the concentration of ownership within Bitcoin is potentially an issue. Um, I think the forking of Bitcoin into Bitcoin Gold, Bitcoin Cash, um, and even the supposed network effect of, of Bitcoin, which is one of the things that um, you know crypto enthusiasts really talk about, um, I, I'm entirely unconvinced on those on those factors at present. Talk talk me through that. Uh, what, so so the Bitcoin fork is where. Um, where there's a, a, a part of the blockchain and the, uh, the community that um, that owns all the data in that blockchain um, just decides, okay, well, it's time to split it. We agree. Uh, I think it's a majority needs to agree that they, they, they split it into two new streams of uh, of the blockchain. Is that correct? Essentially right. And, and no doubt that once that fork has happened, those two you know, continued versions of the blockchain, so your Bitcoin, your Bitcoin Gold, your Bitcoin Cash, they are now all, I suppose, homogenous within their own right. But if you think about money itself, one of the sort of key requirements of money is that it needs to be consistent, right? So if you have Bitcoin and it can be split infinite times, and if it can be split three times, it can be split 3,000 times, Mm. then unquestionably some of the value of it is being distributed across these forked versions of 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 bitcoin and then of course so it's like my dollar at the bank and some bunch of randos had a conversation and decided hey we're going to split that dollar and and, and from now on there's there's dollar bull and dollar hawk yeah but that's yeah. that's a good way of thinking about it imagine yeah, yeah. imagine and it actually dovetails in with the whole democratic side of it is that one of the biggest concerns about fiat money is that it's controlled by a few central bankers. No one elects them. They do whatever they want. We live with the consequences. Now, to tell you a story from last week, I was at a precious metals conference, which given how topical gold and crypto combined are, I was on a panel session about this topic. And I asked the audience, I said, how many of you actually own Bitcoin? And pretty much 50% of the people put their hands up, which didn't surprise me. I then said, please keep your hand up if you had any say in the recent Bitcoin Cash fork, Bitcoin Gold fork, or the cancellation of the Segwit 2 fork, and not when, not one hand stayed up. Mm. Said so. How is this democratic? Then you have no more say over this and the way this develops than you do over what the RBA does. You know when they meet every, you know, pretty much every Tuesday of uh, first Tuesday of every month. So, and I think it's safe to say that it would be incredibly naive to think that those that are developing Bitcoin are not doing with their own are not doing so with their own commercial interests front of mind rather than the broader concerns of the the blockchain or bitcoin community so the forking issue is a real is a real one and the other the other one to do with with the network effect um and you know the network effect is something fairly widely understood you know amazon and and google and facebook have it in spades is that because bitcoin is the first crypto and because it's the one that everyone knows about that is the one that people are going to adopt. Um, and look, I have no no reason to disagree with that um, that statement. But when it comes to money itself, it's pretty hard not to think that the network effect that Bitcoin has is nothing compared to the network effect that gold has. And in fact, if you even look at, you, know, you Google image Bitcoin, what does it look like? It looks like a gold bar. And if you look at what the developers of Bitcoin say, it's beautifully marketed, but everything they say is, this is digital gold, this is digital gold, this is like gold. Mm. Now, if it's better than gold, why would you compare it to gold? Why would you use that as your way of explaining what it is? So when I look at all of the, the, the fundamental things that a monetary system needs to have going for it, I'm still fairly unconvinced. And, and actually, if I could make one other point to it, because there's a there's an element or there's, a, there's a, a, I suppose, a stream of conversation around Bitcoin, which is pretty interesting, which is that a world of multiple competing cryptocurrencies will be a fantastic step forward because it will give us all freedom to choose what we get paid in and what we, get, what we save in. Mm. But from my perspective, at least within the confines of any given nation state, for money to be a medium of exchange and a unit of account, there can really only be one form of it, Right. Because imagine if, you know, in our case, we sell gold, right? Imagine if instead of just pricing it in Australian dollars with our clients here, we had to price it in Bitcoin and Bitcoin gold and Bitcoin cash and what they next fork it and, and report it in. Or imagine, you know, Scuddy, you get paid next time you're chatting to Colgo about your salary. You have to decide, okay, not only do I want to pay rise, I now need to work out which form of crypto I want to get paid in. And I have to monitor the developments of that blockchain as well as, engage in my skills as a journalist that that's not progress 
for society. It's it, crazy. It, it's crazy. As I say, it would be an analogous to the RBA next month coming out and going, we're now going to keep the Aussie dollar as it is, but there's been an unresolvable difference on the board. So we're now <laughs> issuing Aussie dollar hawk and Aussie dollar gold. And going forward, they're going to have different supply profiles and monetary policy. That That's yeah. taken to its logical extreme. That's a barter system. Right. Yeah, yeah, is is it, my view on it? Yeah, so that and that you've just got to go to the next guy and basically say to him, convince them of the value of your uh, offering, correct, uh, on a one to one basis, correct, uh, and you know rather than uh, the entirely sensible and understandable uh, uh, socially social cohesion promoting uh, simple shared medium of exchange that kind of exists today. So the thing I was going through in my head there was. Yeah, how do I think about this? I'll go and get my coffee, um, and the, the guy now sells it. You know, five bucks for a flat white, as it is in Sydney. Um, <laughs> you know, and you know, and then the BTC price and the BTG price, and you Correct. know, and then I've got to decide um, what do I want to pay for this in. What's my bet on the trajectory of the price of my holding in? Like, yeah. It's nuts. It's like saying, you know, you could also pay for it in Commonwealth Bank shares. Correct. Or, you know, Correct. Like whatever. We'll take whatever. That's right. Yeah, That's yeah. right. Um, look, I, I think digitization of money is absolutely so something that is coming society's way. Uh, I think um, already the payments platforms for dollars are excellent. Um, uh, and I think that's going to be – it's going to be a really fascinating ride. Um, I do think um, – Digital currencies are going to have this market, um, you know, but one of the reasons that currencies are currencies, and this is one of my favorite analogies, is like why is a U.S. dollar worth one U.S. dollar? Well, because it's not just the Fed that says it's worth a dollar; it's also the Seventh Fleet, yeah. the United States Marine Corps, you know, um, you know, and and the U.S. Air Force. They all say it's worth a dollar too. And do you want to pick a fight with that? That's right. So, um, uh, so for me, I think there's that whole, you know, the entire government. Um, government, you know, nation-state structure is based on you know governments back being able to back and manage their currencies. I think actually I mean, one one tailwind though for Bitcoin, and because I, I think there are some tailwinds, and I actually think governments and and actually commercial banks as well are quite happy to see this experiment develop. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned the point before. Go governments don't really like cash, and banks clearly don't like it for obvious reasons. It's, governments hate cash. Yeah, so yeah. I think they're quite happy to see this, as I say, experiment develop. And, and the more people are using digital currency, um, then the better for them. So, yeah, mm. I think it's oh, – look, it's an interesting space to watch. I'll be 100% honest. I wish I'd bought one when I first started researching it because it was a lot cheaper than mm. it is now. Um, yeah, I think yeah. anyone that hasn't been long wishes they'd, they'd had some money in it. Yeah. Um, but I think there are still a lot of questions that people should be asking and just not overdoing it if they're going to go and buy some. We're going to talk about some cryptomania uh, in a second, um, and then we'll wrap up. But uh, yeah, um, look, just on governments um, loving digital uh, payments, all of this stuff, I think is actually good. I think there's so much, so much, so many transactions, um, and particularly with um, the complex structures. This is not just a, you know we're talking black economy here, um, paying the plumber a uh, hundred bucks um, to fix a, a leaky tap kind of thing. Um, we're talking about vast multinational, incredibly complex and opaque, uh, opaque uh, tax uh, arrangements um, for multinational companies and for the extremely wealthy people who can afford to have the structures designed for them. Um, and digitization of money and um, the, the, the transparency on uh, exchange, I think it's just governments just absolutely love this. Hooray, there's now this, all this extra money that we can – all these extra transactions that we can tax. Um, so – and the good thing is that it might actually um, free up – you know, if you put a bit of extra, um, you know, regulation around the taxation of goods and services uh, through those complex structures – um, and a bit more transparency in the system, um, then you should be able to free up some tax revenue to give the guys on the other end, people who can never afford to get those kind of the breaks and the extra cash in their pocket. You can get, you can probably hand a bit of money back to them so the government can get get on with providing the services that it needs to. But um, without all that terrible, terribly boring stuff, let's talk about our, um, our the, some of the craziest things we've seen uh, very quickly. Um, as you mentioned, we had a story on pump and dumps. Um, very, very good story by uh, Oscar Williams, Grot in our 
London Bureau. Uh, he got on Telegram and he was managed to find groups of three or four um, scammers picking digital coins and picking a time to ramp the price up in the coin. And so they buy, 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 go, and then they'd see a whole bunch of other people come in and try to get in, get in on this price rise, and then they'd just run them all over um, by taking out all of their um, profit. Uh, and uh, this is now – this is – Super widespread. He was able to find lots of these. Um, this would be in a regulated market. You're going to jail completely. <laughs> yeah, you're going to you're you're going to prison straight away. Um, and um, but there is no way of regulating this. Um, and these new coins are popping up all the time. And they're big on social media. Everybody's got ways of promoting them and new ideas and all that kind of stuff. Rappers are promoting them in the United States. Um, so um, it is starting to get a bit wild west, right? It is, yeah. And look, I think if um, let let's hope um, a couple of couple of points. One, that activity um, it, it, we shouldn't apply that to necessarily Bitcoin or Ethereum, and that it, it's not like the every single crypto is 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 affected by that necessarily. Um, all I can hope is that if people are caught up in this, that it is very small amounts of their capital that they that they choose to invest and, and speculate, um, because as you say, um, there will be no recourse for them. There'll be no um, you know, court or or regulator that they can appeal to and say I was you know missold a product or whatever. So um, again, it's it's classic hallmark behaviour of a bubble when scammers and spruikers get involved because everyone's bought into the euphoria. Um, but yeah, let's let's really hope that the the damage is limited because it's it if people put life savings into this stuff, it's 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 a real problem. Yeah, Dave, you um, get quite animated uh, looking at some of the craziness that's going on in some of these areas and not just bitcoin but obviously but um you know some some of the other um crazier things that are happening out there oh look you've discussed it very much in detail but you've just sit there from a rational perspective you've talked about you know you know boxes rappers you know uh you know celebrities who are just celebrities for being a celebrity or <laughs> promoting coins I encourage everyone as well, if, you, if you're trying to go and, and garner whether you know, Bitcoin and, 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 and coins in general are a bubble, just go and type the name. Go to Google Trends and go and type in the name of the coin and go and see what the, the Google search is. Compare it to the price chart, and I think you'll find that all of a sudden, hey, presto, they're all moving in the same direction. Mm. You now, you talked about the churn last Sunday. You know, we, we talk a lot about uh, you know, Chinese commodity futures and people go and laugh and say, oh, it's, just, you know, it's Chinese cabbies and everything else. I can't see any difference between the two marketplaces at the moment. It's speculative central. Yeah, um, and you've got some research on this. So, you know, the searches over time, um, don't you? Um, yeah, that's paper, right. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, certainly if you if you compare the interest in, in Bitcoin versus gold, it's it's shot past gold. And, and you know, the the price action, it's entirely understandable why that has happened given given the, the rally in the Bitcoin price. And, you know, I think especially if you look at the – if you look at the users of Bitcoin, they're, it's – very much concentrated in under 35s um, and almost exclusively male as well is a very interesting phenomenon as well. Um, you know, and young men like to gamble. Basically, that's that's a a, um, a, a real social phenomena. Um, but it also doesn't surprise me. If you think about millennials, um, you know, they've grown up in the aftermath of the GFC. Um, they've got lots of student debt, but not particularly great um, job prospects right now. Um, so, Bitcoin is for now at least, or some not just Bitcoin, but some of the cryptos, it is the it's the lottery ticket that's paid off. Um, so you can understand yeah, you yeah. can understand the attraction to it. And I think that we're all we are all governed by our own experience. So for me, one of the best things that happened to me as an investor was investing a few dollars in the Nasdaq, making money early on, then giving it all back. Um, if you look at these people, they've all everyone's made money that's been long Bitcoin so far. They'll, they'll learn the lesson, but they'll probably learn the lesson at, at you know um, a few thousand dollars cheaper. I think Con Mikalakis, who you've had on this show before, he, he made a great tweet in reference to Bitcoin, and he said, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was basically every generation needs its bubble. Yeah, right. Okay. And, and I really, I really, that, that really resonated. <laughs> you know, um, I've just got here in front of me. We are going to wrap up in a second, but uh, you know, just an ad, um, which is for an ICO, right? So basically a coin offering for augmented reality next-gen smart glasses that correct many of the issues plaguing currently available products like, you know, Google Glass, et cetera, with a blockchain-based 
software ecosystem to support them. And we've got a picture of an attractive lady putting on some glasses. And it says, um, you know, and then this really crappily photoshopped, you know, pair of glasses with all these little logos around it saying, you know, obviously spruiking the different features. And they'll be available. The entertainment uh, apps native for its smart glasses will be hosted on the App Store Google Play until our own App Store is live. Such such, um, content will be purchasable um, via this coin. So, and then they've got a quote from Tim Cook saying, "We are high on AR for the long run. We think they're great <laughs> things for customers and great commercial. It will be huge." Tim Cook, CEO, Apple Inc. Like this is just like, please, please do not start buying this. You know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, oh yeah, I think I'll get some of that uh, Smart Glass app coin. That'll be good. Um, yeah, it's um, it's it's wild. The other, my other favorite thing this week, cryptos, Zimbabwe chaos in Zimbabwe. And there was a 100% premium on Zimbabwe and Bitcoin exchanges for Bitcoin. So the price was like 1300 US dollars and above. Wild. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm confused about that, though. Doesn't Zimbabwe still still adopts the US dollar as their currency? Probably, uh, probably I mean, informally. Yeah, but, it's, but it's an interesting point because, again, then you think of you think of the chaos that we do see in parts of the world. If you were a Zimbabwe, I mean, if you were a Venezuelan, You'd probably rather be long Bitcoin than long Bolivar, right? So, you know, you yeah. can you can understand why this Short is happening. Short Bolivar, yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Um, okay, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week has been Jordan Alicio, chief economist at ABC Bullion, um, uh, who's got this report coming out on uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies uh, in the near future, and we'll be featuring it on Business Insider. Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Been uh, been a lot of fun. And always, uh, David Scott, off up to um, uh, beautiful Queensland. Yeah, uh, don't contact me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. The show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on iTunes where you can rate us and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time. Today's episode was delivered by Australia Post. They put everything behind your business, helping you save time and money. And with My Post Business, you can save at least 10% when you send on average five eligible parcels a week. Get more info and see the terms and conditions at auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.